1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we humbly come before your word today, recognizing indeed that we are sinners saved by your grace. We consider our calling, O Lord, and recognize that there was nothing attractive about us but by your sovereignty and by your goodwill and purpose before the foundations of the world, you predetermined to save us for your goodwill and purpose. I pray that that would keep us humble today as we acknowledge your word. I pray that you would instruct our souls, illuminate the passage before us, and give us grace that we may not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. For the praise of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. In autumn, we know there are certain signs that the seasons are changing, the leaves turn color, the cooler weather comes in, and the days get shorter. But if there's one thing that um, symbolizes the beginning of autumn, it's football season. And I don't know how many of you watch football. I used to enjoy watching football some time ago, but... uh, Time slips away. I don't have the time to invest hours on every Lord's Day watching a football game. And besides, since the Lord changed my heart, that's no longer of interest to me. But a lot of people do um, find football to be very um, interesting. And I noticed something I've learned recently is something new. Maybe new not to you, but new to me. I've learned about something called fantasy football. And fantasy football is... uh, where you can actually uh, draft your own team, manage your own team, and play against other teams in, in different divisions. And it's, it's, it's all imaginary. It's not real. There's no real football games, but it's, but it's based on real football players, and it's based on their stats. And essentially, in fantasy football, the, the idea is that if you think you can put together a dream team of football players, you will select those who you think are going to best uh, produce the result of a winning team. And so you get to trade players and you look at their stats, you look at their touchdowns, you look at their running yards, you look at their their history and track record, and you're able to, to sort of draft and manage and put together a team that compete against other teams. And the goal is to win, obviously. 
Um, I certainly do not have the time nor the interest of investing in anything like that. For those of you who do, um, maybe you can educate me more on the subject. But I use this as an example because it, it brings us to our text today. It brings us to our passage in thinking about who does God choose. Just as you could sit there with a fantasy football and select the best people to create a team of your liking, the question is, what kind of team would God choose, right? God is, is selecting uh, um, people for a team, right? And it is a team. We're, we're on the team of the Lord, and this team is going to be put together, uh, which is called the church, and the Lord wants to conquer the world for the name of Christ through this team. Who would you choose, right? Well, you know, if you want to conquer the world in any way, shape, or form, you're going to choose people with the most power, the most resources, the most intelligence, and the most might. You want to get the sharpest minds in the world and recruit them to form a dream team to conquer the world. But not so with God. God works very opposite than we do. Isn't it true? In fact, that is the whole premise here is that, that God does not choose the mighty. He does not choose the strong. He does not choose the powerful. He chooses the most undesirable of choices to make a point known. And that point is that he is all-powerful. The church of Corinth is an interesting church, and I must give you a little context here. And that is because the church of Corinth is a church which in many ways resembles the churches today. It is a church that is rife with division. It is rife with uh, all kinds of controversy and conflicts and theological disagreements and uh, pride. And, 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 and Paul is addressing this church, which he labored in for 18 months planting, and he's addressing with some very difficult um, um, chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. It, and, and, and we have to see that as the backdrop to what's going on here. So in particular, I want you to look in chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. The church was divided. There was arrogance and pride. People were puffed up. Paul says in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, uh, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And so, and so one questions, how could God's people get so arrogant? How is it that people who at one point in their life recognized what wretched sinners they were, which recognized how desperate in need they were of a Savior, could get to a point where they stick their chest out and they're filled with arrogance and pride and want to fight and argue with their brothers and sisters? How does that happen? Well, it's called sin, and sin remains in us. And as in, even in our confession today, we need to constantly hear the message of repentance. The spiritual pride that is rife in the church of Corinth is addressed with this passage in our text today. For consider your calling, brothers. 
In other words, think back who you were when God saved you. Remember who you were. Remember what your life was like when you came to the Lord. You want to puff out your chest. Remember when you were down on your knees begging for mercy. It is humbling and it is a reminder who we are in Christ. The whole point here is that we are nobodies. God doesn't save the mighty and the strong and the powerful of this world. He chooses the nobodies and he makes them somebodies through his son. We must never forget that. And that brings us also into the understanding of how this fits into the next but God in our series. Because although God chooses among the foolish, among the weak, among the poor, but God proves a point. But God intervenes. But God shows that through the things of this world, through the people of this world that seem debased, that seem marginalized, that seem underprivileged, God is going to use them for his glory. You see, this passage teaches us that God is sovereign in his choice of election. And God's choice is unconditional It is unmerited and it is based on his goodwill and pleasure. And when God calls someone to repentance, when God calls someone to salvation, we must recognize our complete inadequacy. We have nothing to offer God. We relinquish dependence on self and it calls us to renounce all human wisdom and embrace the foolishness of the cross. And so this brings me to my first point, who can believe? Right? Who can believe? Who's qualified? It says in verse 20, 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. In other words, we were all called. We're not talking about just merely the external call. We're talking about the internal call of the gospel. Consider your calling. Consider your status, where you were in life when God called you. What kind of What kind of life did you live? What kind of vocation? What kind of uh, 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 position or social status did you have? And he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And that's a very important one, according to worldly standards. God's standards and the world's standards are at antithesis with each other, right? God's value system and the world's value system are complete opposites, God says what is exalted among men will be debased before God. And what is, what is debased before man will be exalted before God. In other words, the value systems are contrary. The world's standards elevates people based on their standards and their value system. And God looks at it and, 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 and it makes him sick. And on the other hand... Those who the world looks at with disdain and and disgust, God treasures. God's value system, God's standard, and our standards are very different. So, So who makes up the church in Corinth and who makes up, for that matter, the church of Christ in general? Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. Now, I want to preface this by saying not many does not mean not any. There's a big difference, right? Not many does not mean not any. 
Uh, God does choose to save some, some intellects, right? Paul himself was a, a, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi who was theologically superior to anyone in his generation. He admits that himself in Galatians 1 where, where he was far advanced than any of his contemporaries. He was a brilliant mind and God saved him and used him. Right? We know that there are many wealthy people in the New Testament that God saved. Cornelius, for instance, was, was a Roman general, a, a centurion rather. And we see that Barnabas was a man who owned lots of land and he sold some off and used it for the church and, and used his home for the kingdom. We see that Crispus here in Corinth uh, was the, the chief of the synagogue and he owned a house and he had a house church. Lydia, the, the seller of fine purple. So, so God does save people that, that have position and social status and have wealth and have, and have uh, intelligence. So I don't want us to have this quasi-spiritual attitude where God only saves the poor and dejected. That's not true. God saves all different kinds of people from all different social backgrounds, from all different walks of life, from all different financial uh, perspectives. Some of us have great intelligence. Some of us are, are more simple. And some of us have great wealth that God has blessed us to accumulate through our hard work and labor. And some of us are barely getting by. But you see, in the kingdom of God, those things don't matter. When we come to church, we're all equal before the eyes of God. You see, the world's standards judges us. The world standards compartmentalizes us and stratifies us. I mean, that's what the world does, right? I hate when we get into election season because election season always breaks down society into voting blocks. This group and that group and pits everyone against each other. And that's just the world. But in the church, we are one in Christ. Amen? Those divisions are, are human divisions. They're human stratifications. But in the kingdom, we are one in Christ. But the point still stands that historically speaking, it bears witness that the majority makeup of the early church and has been such the case throughout the generations, not many of you were intelligent. Not many are powerful according to worldly standards. And not many of the church or the Christian church are of noble birth. He is telling them this to remind them of who they were. Here are people boasting in their arrogance and their knowledge of the word of God and says, well, who are you? Not many of you are that intelligent to begin with. Not many of you have so much power. Not many of you are noble births. In fact, many of you are probably born into slavery and are slaves in the early church. And he's saying, where is the boasting? Where is the arrogance? Where is the pride? Why? And even if you have those things, there's no reason to boast. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4, two chapters later, if you have anything, it is God who's given it to you. Why boast? Why do you boast as if you've attained it yourself? The smugness and arrogance in Corinth was ripping the church apart. They need to come back to the cross. They need to come back to where they began. Remember what it was when they came to the foot of the cross. And the simple gospel told them that they were sinners and they needed a savior. And how freeing and liberating it was to be humbled before a holy God. 
I want you to think about it this way. Could you imagine if God only dealt with or showed grace to the privileged class? Imagine if God only chose the wealthy. Imagine if God only chose the intellectuals. Imagine if God would choose only those who are of power and influence in the world. What would it say about God? It would say that God's compromised and that he depends on human intelligence and wit to accomplish his purposes. Well, the whole point of this is that we are nobodies apart from Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord brings forth a condemning prophecy to Israel. They had forsaken the way of the Lord. They had been taken over by Babylon. They've been deported. They've been exiled. And there's this arrogance that's in them. They, they feel as if, well, we don't deserve this. Why did God do this to us? And they, they felt maybe they were entitled to better. And they had forgotten how they have forsaken, where they were guilty of spiritual adultery. And they forgot, more importantly, who they were when God brought them and bought them and purchased them and redeemed them as his covenant people. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1 through 7. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem and her abominations and say, Thus saith the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor scrubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you and to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. And I said to you, in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a pant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Graphic language. The metaphor is striking. In some ways, it may be offensive to our own Hearing right now, well, that's really gross to hear that. But God is trying to drive home a point. You are nothing. You are, you are a bastard child cast out on the street, wallowing in your blood, and I saved you. And I made you who you are, and you boast against me. Oh, that we would realize who we are. In reality, the only way we could realize that is by seeing God for how big he is so that it may humble us to know how little we are. A big view of God will always deflate the pride and arrogance of a self-righteous man or woman. We need a bigger view for God, a bigger sense of who he is. Consider your calling, brothers. It is not we who called ourselves, God called you. Not only did God call you, but he chose you. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's move on to the next point. But God chose. Well, who did he choose? When I was in sixth grade, that was one of the toughest years of my adolescence. 
I think for most kids it is. I've noticed that both of my daughters had tough years, sixth grade. Sixth grade was tough for me. And every, every day in recess, we would play football. We would play with a Nerf football. We would play touch football. And, and I was known as Butterfingers Bob. Um, for whatever reason, whenever the ball came to me, it slipped out of my hands. So every day when we would gather for recess, I dreaded recess because they would start, they would get the two team captains and they would start selecting who was going to be on each team. And of course, as you know it, Butterfinger Bob was always the last one to be chosen. Not a good feeling, is it? I used to grime us over it, but I pulled through. We get through in life, don't we? It's not good when you feel like you're the last one to be chosen. You have nothing to offer. It's not a good feeling of rejection. It's not a good feeling when you don't get the job in the interview. It's not a good feeling when you are competing in a game and you lose. It's not a good feeling when you try out for a role in a play and you don't get the part. We like to be chosen. We want to be the one who wins, who succeeds. And yet, that is exactly what we are told here, that when God puts together his dream team, he selects not the people who have the best stats and the most to offer, but he chooses the people who are at the bottom of the barrel. He chooses the Butterfinger Bobs. He chooses the people who can't seem to get ahead in life. He chooses the people who seem to be rejected and despised and fail among the world. He chooses the things that are not. I want you to think about this. He chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. In each of these, there is a a purpose. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He, He chooses the weak to confound the strong and to bring to nothing the things that are. There's a purpose in all of this. And God wants to show humanity that he does not need you or your talents or your abilities to do what he wants. The very purpose of choosing the worst of men is to prove that God could take anyone and, and, and who's a broken human being, who's messed up, who's been ridiculed, who's been marginalized, and he could take them out of the mud and shape them and mold them into a creature for his purpose and glory. Oh, that we would be trophies of grace to bring honor and glory to his majesty. You see, in all of this, it's not about boasting, right? The whole point is to deflate boasting. There's no room for boasting when God chooses the weakest and the foolish and the things that are not. Who can boast in his presence? I like what D.A. Carson said one time, there will be no peacocks strutting in heaven boasting about their beauty and their, their gifts. God will diminish and humble the proud. First, God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chooses the foolish people. Now again, according to worldly standards, what do we mean by, by foolish? Well, we have to look at the previous a uh, few verses to understand the context of what foolishness means. Because in the Bible, calling someone as fool is saying, you're a worthless human being. You're, 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 you're a worthless fellow, right? That's the, that's the translation. Someone who just has no value to life. Someone who's devoid of any understanding. But, but we're talking about the world standards. Look what it says in verse 
18, for the word of the cross, that is the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Look at verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Greeks were the super intellects of the day, the philosophers, the Aristotelians, and, and, and the rational thinkers. But through wisdom, they could not know God. The means by which God chooses to reveal himself and to save sinners is through the foolishness of the gospel, through the foolishness of the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We're discussing apologetics in our Wednesday night. One of the main things that we discuss is, is how we cannot reach the unbeliever through reason and through, through our uh, intellect and through the worldly wisdom. If you're going to reach the lost, it must be through the chosen means of the message of the cross. It's the foolishness of the gospel. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world because it sounds dumb. You guys follow this crucified carpenter from 2,000 years ago? You, 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 you deprive yourself of any joy and pleasure in life and you think you're going to heaven? You're an idiot. The world looks at us like fools. You go through any university and 99% of the most intelligent people in the world, these college professors, they think we're a bunch of morons. Because they're blind. Professing to be wise, they become fools. You see, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And that which is foolishness to the world is true wisdom. Again, this speaks about the reversal of God's values with the world's values. There's a reversal of what is true and what is not. The things that the world treasures and sees as good, God says is bad. The things that the world says is bad, God says is good. You see, when we understand this, we understand that the foolishness that God chooses or the foolish people that God chooses are not those who are wise according to worldly standards, but those who are fools for the sake of Christ. Those who abandon everything, they sell out for Christ. They give their lives to the kingdom of God. In the eyes of the world, you are a fool, but in the eyes of God, you're a child. You're a saint. I think of Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the Sanhedrin was perceiving Peter and John preaching in the temple. It says they perceived that they were uneducated men common men, and they were astonished at their teaching. Peter, John, they were fishermen. <laughs> you ever go down by the docks and hang out with guys who fish? They're not 
brightest bulbs. And that's the whole point. Jesus chose foolish men, fishermen, common men, uneducated men, but anointed them with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach wisdom, to preach Christ crucified, and to turn the world upside down. What was important is that they recognized they had been with Jesus. Oh, when we're with Jesus, we're the most wise people in the world. We have the mind of Christ. The Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth. Secondly, God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Again, we look throughout biblical history and we see any instances where God chooses the weak to confound the strong. In Judges chapter 7, was it not Gideon who was told by Lord, you have too many men to go up against the Midianites? He sent home 20,000 and it wasn't until he gave them the test to see how they would drink the water, where they would lap it up like dogs or drink like humans, that God set apart 300 men and said, now you can go fight the Midianite army. Why did God reduce the numbers of Gideon's army to show him that you do not need a strong army? What you need is God. Isn't this the record of Scripture? Saul and all his might and his powerful army saw Goliath and they, they cowered in fear. They said, what are we going to do? We're doomed. Look at the giant. He's going to crush us. We're going to be defeated. And God takes a little shepherd boy, David. He, he, was, he was a teenager. He was so skinny that he couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. It fell off of him. He said, I don't want the armor. And he goes with his slingshot he faces the giant, and we know the story well, but what does it teach us? It teaches us that it wasn't his strength or his ability to, to overpower a huge human being, but it was God who was empowering him. He says, I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he swung that rock right between the eyes and beheaded Goliath. God uses the weak things of the world Remember when Samuel went to Jesse's household? He went one by one. He's looking at all the, the big, brawn, uh, uh, tough brothers of Jesse, uh, or his sons, and you know, I like this guy. Oh, he's big. He's... And God says, no, no, I want David. The youngest, the smallest, the runt of the litter. Huh? That's how God operates. He chooses the younger. He chooses the weaker. He chooses the, the people that seem like they can't do it. And he does it to prove the point that it is God's strength we need, not our own. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world. He had armies that could crush anyone. Moses, a weak old man, 40 years in obscurity in the wilderness, came into, came into Egypt, 80 years old, says, let my people go. Let my people go. And all the plagues come. And, and Pharaoh, after he finally lets them go, says, what am I doing? And he pursues them into the Red Sea and God wipes them out. Ah, Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of using the weak things of this world to shame the strong is to show the power of God to the world. That's why we must realize, as Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might, nor by power,
but my, by my spirit, says the Lord. In our weakness, we, we are to be content in our weakness. As Paul said, in insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. It is the strength of the Lord that resides upon me in my weakness. Do you feel powerless today? Do you feel weak? That's a good place to be. Because in your weakness, in the sense of your sense of powerlessness that you can't do it, God will accomplish it. It's when you think you could do it. It's when you think you have the power. It's when you think it's all up to you, you will fail. God won't allow you to succeed if he loves you. That's the beauty of it. If God loves you, he will not let you succeed in your pride and arrogance. Because God loves you so much, he wants you to be humble. He wants you to be Christ-like. And some of us are more stubborn. Jacob was a stubborn man, wasn't he? I love Jacob. I, I can relate to him in some ways. Jacob always fought against the Lord, always fought against the Lord his whole life. He, 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 was, he was a tough cookie. He was a tough kid. And, and the Lord had to get him right in his hip and cripple him to make him realize that he depend on God the rest of his life. God chose the foolish, he chose the weak, and he chose the low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. When you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus, we learn that, that Christ calls some of the most despised and low people of the world to himself. One of the things that confounded the religious elite in Christ's day is that rather than, than going, if he's truly the Jewish Messiah, instead of going to the temple and instead of fraternizing with the Pharisees and instead of hanging out with the Sanhedrin and talking theology and scripture, where is Jesus? He's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers. This can't be the Messiah. No Messiah would do that. That's, that's horrific. You should be here with us discussing the weightier matters of the law versus the lighter matters of the law. Let's have some debate. Let's have some theology time. What is Christ doing? He's dining with tax collectors. He, he, he's bringing crowds of poor people and making fish and, and out of a few and, and, and fish and and, and taking a few fish and a few loaves and multiplying to feed thousands of people and, and he's healing the sick and he, he, he's raising the dead of a Roman centurion's daughter. Who is this man? The Jews were offended at Jesus because of this. But that was precisely the point. The point is Christ wanted to insult them. He wanted to show them that you are not the sons of Abraham because if you were the sons of Abraham, you would do what Abraham does, but you are of your father, the devil. You hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. You put on a good show. You're like whitewashed tombs, but inward, you're dead men's bones. Jesus eviscerated them. He shredded them. Of course they were going to be insulted. Of course they wanted to kill him. But it wasn't done. The Lord didn't do it because he wanted to hurt them or because he didn't like them. It's because God hates pride. 
God, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That principle will always be true. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ ripped and shredded the Pharisees for their hypocrisy on judgment day, the intentions of our hearts will be revealed and he will rip and shred every person who pretended to serve him. The masks will be ripped off and we'll all be naked before the Lord. But God, that brings me to the point, but God. If it weren't for God, where would any of us be? Think back in your life. Think back of who you were when God saved you. Where would you be today if it wasn't for the Lord? Where would you be? What would your life look like? How would you be faring right now? Would you even be alive? I personally think I would be dead by now if I didn't get saved. I was on a freight train to hell running at 100 miles an hour. God intervened at right, just the right time in my life. He always does, doesn't he? Where would you be if God didn't save you? But God. God takes the rocks that are rejected, the, the stones that, looks, that look foolish, and he crushes them and makes them jewels and diamonds of his grace. We were all diamonds in the rough at one point. And it isn't until the pressure that God puts on us in conversion and sanctification and ultimately the luster and glimmer of our reality of who we are in Christ will not shine until Judgment Day. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And this is consistent with the but God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. I want you to think about that. Christ was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. The honor is for you to believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled a bit because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But notice verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God. At one time, we were all nobodies. But now... We are chosen. We are beloved. We are a royal priesthood. We are, we are citizens of the kingdom. Oh. Just marinate on that for a while. And it leads to the conclusion of this sermon. The conclusion is we have nothing to boast about. 
if we understand this but God, if we understand that before the but God, we were nobodies, and then after the but God, you are somebody in Christ, if you grasp that, there's nothing to boast about. Isn't that what the Lord says? That the whole purpose of God choosing the, the weak and the foolish and, the, and the, the nobodies of this world is to what? To reduce and eliminate all boasting before his presence. It says here in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ who's become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Your salvation and redemption is because of Christ, because he suffered and died for you and the benefits of the atonement have been applied to you through the sanctifying grace and the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. It is all because of the work of the triune God predestinating you, calling you, sanctifying you, redeeming you, regenerating you. It is all in Christ. Everything you have is in Christ. The fullness of knowledge and wisdom and treasures are in Christ. What do you have to brag about? What do you have to boast about? God may even humble you in this life and take things away from you. He'll take your health. He may take, put you through a trial where you lose your health or lose maybe uh, valuables or you lose uh, worldly treasures or you lose family members or you, you lose status or whatever it is. God loves you so much, he'll, he'll do that to show you the beauty of Christ that is greater than all of that. There's two important things you need to know today. Number one is how much God loves you. I want you to realize that. I want you to think of how much God loves you. He loves you so much that while you may not have been chosen by the world, he chose you. You may be despised and rejected, but so is Christ. But now you are accepted in the beloved. You may have been a nobody in this world, in this life, but in Christ, you have everything We are heirs of the eternal inheritance that God has prepared for us. And secondly, I want us to remember that whatever our boast is, it's in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. The Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts Boastiness, that he understands and know me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And if you have anything to boast of, it's boast in your knowledge of God. Boast that you know the one, the eternal God, who's revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ. That is true treasure. That is true might. It is true power. It is true strength. It is true wisdom. If you have Christ, you have it all. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I want to thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We ask that you'd please important to our hearts the truth of this word. May we not just be hearers, but be doers. And Lord, we pray indeed that we go forth from this place different than when we came in. In Christ's name, amen.